Welcome back. This is episode 77 of Herpetological Highlights. I am Ben Marshall and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. Um, and we have a, a, what would you call this? A community sourced, community... Um, yeah, I mean, kind like of, partly. Out sort of thing, right? We've got, we got a very meaty episode coming up. And so it all stemmed from, in our last episode, we were talking about the combat rituals of green pit vipers, uh, Tremerosaurus macrops, the big-eyed pit viper. Yeah. And we got onto some loose discussion of other animals which maybe demonstrate combat of various kinds. And neither one of us could recall reading or seeing frogs battling. And so, yeah, we asked for... Well, we asked our listeners if anyone knew of any frog combat that was going down against our, uh, well, outside of our beady little eyes. And sure enough, it turns out that there's loads of frog combat going on. It's actually pretty widespread. Yeah, and there's pretty so, much frog wars. Yeah, it's like everywhere you look, <laughs> frogs are battling. It's mad no one's ever seen it. It's mad it's not spilling out onto the streets. But uh, yeah, that kind of prompted a bit more of a thorough literature search. We received some cool videos and a couple of papers. And yeah, we decided to... Um, do this episode on frog combat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Battle frogs. Love yeah. it. We got a couple of instances of frogs fighting and um, some quite interesting kind of ramifications and actually a surprising degree of complexity to some of the combat. I think um, being as we were like naive of the combat at all, the to kind of read particularly the second paper and see, I mean, how much these groups of scientists have actually already found out about the nuance of frog social behavior particularly as it relates to combat and also color is uh, fascinating so yeah excited to get into it yeah 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 and you know via some pretty neat um field experimentation so we're sort of going to go from pure observation paper mm. to a uh yeah field experiment a manipulation yeah totally to, to sort of get onto the finer details of basically how successful uh different frogs can be yeah and in both cases it's kind of testing well particularly in the first one it's just like there was a suspicion that this was going on um you know for for reasons to do with the size of males compared to females and then yeah this is um kind of an investigation into male-to-male combat as it explains males being bigger than females which has been known for a long time and kind of suggested it might be to do with combat so um should we get into it? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think so. Okay, so the first paper is Magalhães, Lacerda, Rees, Garcia, and Pinero, 2018, Sexual Dimorphism in Bocamanohyla Martinsi, with a report of male-to-male combat, published in the South American Journal of Herpetology. Mm-hmm. 2018. So- yeah, so in this paper, they kind of introduce it by discussing the two primary modes in which frog combat arise. So the first, which we're not going to really be discussing today, is... It's just pure rage. It's pure rage. Rage of the most pure kind. And it's in species which breed explosively. So basically, there's like... Imagine there's like heavy rains, and all of a sudden there's this big pool has formed. And all the frogs, they can't resist. They're rushing over to it. They're they scrambling. They out of the mud. Exactly. They're scrambling yeah. to find mates near these communal breeding pools. It's a wild scramble. It's every frog for himself. And in that process, there might be some warfare emerging amongst male frogs. But pre- predominantly, they're all trying to get to the females, get into amplexus and mate. 
That's not what we're looking at here today. The second type is actually frogs which combat as a result of prolonged breeding. And what that means is that frogs which are constrained to a very um, narrow time window will be explosive breeders, right? Because as I said, the they got one shot. The heavy rains come and everything, every frog knows it's time to breed, right? The other type is prolonged breeding, which species breed over a much longer period of the year. And often that means that they need to find and guard territories. So the males will find and guard territories and then the females will be traveling around. They'll find a male in a nice territory. The combination of the male and his territory will be appealing and they'll elect to mate. And these are usually species which mate in like bromeliads or in log hollows or in little small private pools which have to be held and protected against rival males. So that the important thing to add to that is this, um, like you're saying, the, the period of breeding. And it's if you're looking at, uh, let's say, desert species or something, it's not just there is water, there is rain. It's that the rest of the year is uh, unsuitable for reproduction for these for these uh, animals. So it could be a resource thing. It could be a uh, where to reproduce, so a, a water and a pool thing. Um, so you can imagine. I don't know if there's anything investigated this, but I would presume that the more territorial, prolonged breeding sort of frogs are more likely to be tropical. It makes a lot of sense to say that. Yeah, yeah I think you're right. And certainly the frogs that we're looking at today are exactly that. They're tropical species. Right. Yeah. Where it, it actually is worth defending a location rather than just competing over a time. Yeah, you're just switching the scale. You're switching from temporal to spatial. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think that's a really good point. And um, it's actually, um, this kind of ties into sexual size dimorphism, which is something we've talked about in this podcast quite a lot, which is in many species, um, males and females are different sizes for various reasons. And in a 1997 paper, Professor Rick Schein noted that in most frog species, females are actually larger than males, presumably so they can carry lots and lots of eggs. But there are frog species where males are larger than females, and Shine suggested that it was probably because of male-to-male combat selecting for big, bolshy males that could take down their rivals. Um, the 1997 paper was actually criticised for being a bit oversimplified and not taking into account things like the relationships between frog species phylogenetically or the actual lives of the frogs themselves. But the main point that Shine was making, that males being bigger and therefore sexual size dimorphism being biased towards males is probably, possibly, due to the fact that males engage in combat. But so few frogs have actually been seen, or had actually been seen, and closely studied that there wasn't that much proof. Yeah, and this is this is with this assumption that being larger aids you in the combat, or aids, you know, victory in that combat. Yeah. Because you could have a scenario where that isn't the deciding factor, so then you'd be looking at something... Um, you know, maybe the, the spines or certain structures that aid with combat or, you know, other aspects. If, if combat is that way twisted, it's not just a, a weight thing necessarily. Yeah, it might not be a battle reliant on brute strength. Like you say, it might be that some kind of dexterity is required from these Yeah, frogs. or game of wits. Yeah, so you can't assume just because they're bigger that they must be battling, basically. Mm-hmm. So that takes us to Boca Manohyla Martinsii, which is a name which is formed of two uh, patronyms, which is detestable, oh. in my opinion. Uh, but yeah. we call it Martin's tree frog, and it's a tree frog from southeastern Brazil. And, I mean, it's a pretty cool little character. 
They've got a thumb spike on each arm, or kind of on each thumb, called a prepolex, and quite chunky forearms, suggesting they might like to throw down and fight. And they breed in pools uh, of streams which form after torrential rains, these so-called torrential pools. And um, other species in the genus Bocomanahyla have actually been seen with scars, and they've been heard calling from territories. But only one other species of Bocomanahyla has been seen to engage in male-to-male combat, and that is Bocomanahyla ibitiguara. And... Uh, yeah, there's another paper focusing on that. And those frogs were emitting a specific fight call during their combat with combatants making like a sort of whining noise. See, now I, I, I realise you've used the term fight call, which is what they use, right? Yeah. Wouldn't the more appropriate term be uh, battle cry? I surely? think that would have... I think they <laughs> missed a trick there. I, <laughs> it might be the sort of thing that that would have never got through review because you're... You know, it is single combat as opposed to a battle, but... Yeah, maybe a battle cry would be more I, of like a I rallying I would have been call. tempted to try and push it through. <laughs> if, if ever you find yourself publishing on frog battle cries, Ben, I expect you to use that <laughs> phraseology. And I think we oh, should probably... We should probably start using it in this episode to try and sort of like embed it in the minds of frog-interested folks. I think we could do a lot for the, the battle cry The frog battle cry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Do we have a recording of this battle cry? We do. We have a recording of the one from um, Boca Manahila Martinsii, which we're about to get into. We could probably play it now if you want. Oh. So basically, before we go on to that, they basically, the point of this paper was they wanted to test for sexual size dimorphism in this species, Martin's tree frog. And so they did a bunch of morphometric measurements. And um, what they actually found... Like a whole bunch, not just not just size as such, but size and different aspects of uh, the animal. So you've got sort of head measurements, eye measurements, uh, differences between like nostril and eye. Like they... they all sorts of leg measurements as well. It's not necessarily just uh, size dimorphism in, in scale. It is different aspects or the ratio between these aspects as well. That's right, because they really weren't sure what it might be that would be the dimorphism, because obviously not that right. much is known about the behaviour of this species. So it could be that something very surprising. Um, like you say, you know, perhaps an eye measurement has something to do with combat. You just don't know until you check. But what they actually yeah. found, um, like you say, SVL, so snouts event length, the, the typical measure of who's biggest, right? Certainly for snakes. I mean, SVL is really all you, the, the main one you can do. Um, that mass, yeah. That, yeah, and so with frogs, they've got a lot more um, appendages to measure. And what they actually found out was there was two differences between males and females. Although they were the same length, the males and females, the forearm width and the tibia length were actually larger in male frogs. And that's because of the hypertrophied forearms. So they've got these like insanely muscular forearms and they've also got longer shin bones in their back legs. And of course, they actually managed to witness a showdown, hence the title of the paper, between two males of this Martin's tree frog species. Uh, two males were found in a rock crevice over wet soil near a temporary stream surrounded by herbaceous vegetation and it was raining softly. That's the scene of this See, battle. this is... I love that. I love the, the specifically the soft rain because all I have is these two frogs facing off and in the back of my mind I've got the, the end of Blade Runner. And that's, 
<laughs> they're going they're going at it and uh, yeah there's a video there's a video which we have watched and honestly the video shows total domination there's basically two male frogs one male has the other male pinned upside down wwe style looks like he's going for the tap out and the male who is winning who's like on top right so you've got one frog on its back on the floor and then you've got another male just lying on top of it they're sort of like face to face. He's just pressing him against the ground. And the one that's winning, the one who's subduing the other male, is cooling furiously. And that's the noise we heard earlier, that that furious grunt of a male in combat. And um, yeah, interestingly, one other thing is it looks like the male who's winning is trying to turn the opponent over. And um, when you look at the pictures, you can see that in the paper, they've got a picture of another male who's not actually in this fight. It's just an example of some of the scarring you can see. And the frog's back, its dorsal surface, is actually covered in like tiny white scars. And they think that these scars originate from the use of that prepolex, that thumb spike, yeah. to scratch the hell out of each other during the fights. And although they didn't witness that necessarily in this fight, because they only recorded a couple of minutes, and um, they actually got there after the fight had started, so they couldn't tell whether or not it was a male guarding its territory or coming to try and take a territory that was mm-hmm, winning. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they, the, the combination of witnessing this fight, hearing these battle cries, and seeing scars on other males is evidence enough to demonstrate that this species does actually engage in male-to-male combat. And it's it's pretty brutal. It's worth noting that, you know, these scars, there's quite a lot of them. And it's all over the back of the back of their head and sort of neck there. And if I were to describe them using a sort of, you know, an analogy that people maybe have seen more often, you've seen like manatees or, or whales or things like that that have had lots of uh, sort of close calls with things, lots of sort of, scratches across the body that's the sort of thing we're looking at with this frog yeah that's totally yeah that's totally what i see striations yeah and it really is like you say covering the whole dorsal surface it's very very noticeable yeah um it does suggest that they're combating you know semi-regularly particularly if they're large males that are guarding territories i would imagine so um yeah so they've got these big thick forearms presumably those big thick forearms help them in fights they might also be an adaptation to live in these torrential streams because I imagine some of the time the water's going to be rushing down these like cascades pretty quickly. The frogs might need to hold on. It also might help the males hold on during amplexus with the actual females. They've got strong arms to sort of grip on. But that on. hasn't been observed in this species, correct? No, that's correct. They've never actually seen them mate in the wild. Yeah. I mean, you'd suspect if it was something to do with a torrential uh, sort of water setup that females would also benefit from having it. That's right, yeah. Unless the males were spending more time in the water as they guard their territories or something, but yeah. True. Yep, 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 yep. That could be it. But yeah, you're right. Like You would think if they're all just hanging out in these streams that the females would need to be hench as well. Yeah. Um, The other thing they noticed, which I mentioned earlier, was that the tibia bone is actually longer in males. And they suggest that might be due to increased escape efficiency because males, where they're sitting, calling all the time, predators might be drawn to them and they might need to be better at jumping away. Um, That's just a... That's kind of an assumption that the uh, well, it's more of a suggestion that the authors are making, but uh, it might explain this other dimorphic trait, which is the longer shin bone. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I think this paper essentially it very neatly. Well, I mean, it because it, if you Google this species, right, Bokemana hyla martinsi, there's like nothing out there really on this species. There's like one other paper about the uh, calls they make. So this is really fleshed out many facets of the ecology of this species mm-hmm. um, even amphibia web there's really not a lot on there so um, yeah it's just 
cool to see that not only is there combat in a frog, which we were up until this week completely ignorant of, but also it's uh, it's quite complicated and uh, it's not it's wrestling and thumb spiking in conjunction. Yeah, which sounds pretty pretty brutal. I do have to draw attention. There is a beautiful uh, like illustrative diagram in this paper of the combating frogs, and I I just I don't know I I love it. I absolutely love it. I love having illustrations that show uh you know this is gonna be something quite complicated and a video obviously can't go in a paper and just a series of screenshots yeah okay that's fine but sometimes they don't illustrate uh how things are occurring as clearly as a a good drawing i mean it's like field guides yeah totally totally and i think really want a photographic field guide you want something with illustrations that highlight the field marks that are most important Absolutely. And I mean, what is better than that smug little frog pictured <laughs> in figure three after it vanquishes the other male? Yep. It's just sitting there with this smarmy little grin on its face like, hey, 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 this is my territory. <laughs> it's like, okay, froggy, you've done it. And actually, speaking of um, nice annotations, we barely mentioned it last week, but the uh, annotation in the uh, male to male combat paper from last week's pretty cool and worth going back to check out. <laughs> <laughs> Not like this. This is much better. Combating wrestle frogs brilliant yeah. combating wrestle frogs are cool but uh i quite like the uh, diagram you drew of the uh vipers bopping each other and yeah. doing all manner of things but yeah it's fine as it's you fine. said it was much better than the shaky camera footage which i produced <laughs> <laughs> but you see that's what that you know that that does illustrate the point if you had screenshots from any footage be it shaky or not uh sometimes it's hard to you know you've got a lot of extra information there that isn't relevant to what's being described exactly yeah the illustration it- is a good way of pairing a lot of that down yeah and i'm not familiar with like i watched the battle between these frogs and like to be honest it's quite a visceral scene it's quite sort of distracting it's nice to have some sort of calm scientists pick it apart and draw the key bits because when i watch two frogs battle the emotion's overwhelming i can't really concentrate especially mm-hmm. with that guttural cry in the background with the battle so. cry yeah. yeah well that's exactly it that's its purpose is to to get to your soul yeah you to need shake that. your very being exactly you need that diagram to focus the mind yeah yeah so from a very simple wrestling bout onto a little bit more of a complex color coordinated battleground we have a paper published in ethography in 2020 recent what did i say ethography that's not even close to being the right word is that even a word it starts and ends with the same letter ethology in 2020 uh by yang uh premal richards zawaki richards zawaki uh, published in 2020, prior resident effect determined success of male-male territorial competition in a colour polymorphic poison frog. Ooh. Very cool. Yeah, so the idea behind this experiment was that sometimes animals that fight have signals in their appearance which give rivals a clue as to how good they're likely to be in battle. So this can be coloration-based. Well, yeah, potentially how good they are in battle, but also this... There's another aspect at play here where it is a signalling to females of their fitness. So sometimes colour polymorphism, or you know, being brightly coloured, whatever, 
is a way of avoiding conflict because you can just be like, oh, well, look, that one's really bright. They don't have to fight because that one's clearly superior because of all the extra energy he's been able to put into being bright and showy. You know, it's, it's quite a core aspect of this idea of sexual selection, yeah? Totally, you can avoid yeah. all the competition and the fighting and the whatever if you can just prove it simply and then everybody sort of benefits apart from the really dull lame male well even the dull lame male benefits because it can see the male which is that much more bright and shiny and it knows there's no point mucking around with it because it will just get it's not gonna get battered yeah Yeah. exactly those other frogs those other frogs they had to fight and find out and they came away with scratches on their backs and a you know hurt pride exactly yeah so yeah, there's this idea that coloration can reduce the energy expended during costly pa- battles. No, fo- no point fighting if you'll lose. And um, they, mm-hmm. they highlight some other interesting things in this paper, like sometimes differently colored animals can be more aggressive. If you've got multiple color morphs in a species, sometimes one particular color morph might be more violent than others. So melanin has been connected to increased aggression because genes associated with melanin production also control hormone production, making darker individuals of some frogs more dangerous in battle than others, which is pretty mm. mad. But in and this- then it being, being cold-blooded, uh, you know, reptiles and stuff, then you've got this connection with thermoregulation and those sorts of changes. And I think there are, yeah, there's a lot at play when it comes to, to color morphs. Yeah, so. I mean, color is being selected for so many different things all at once. And yeah. yeah, you know, when you, I think probably if you went back 50 years and looked at a strawberry poison frog, which is Ufega pumilo, pumilio, which is the focal species of this study, you, we knew that their coloration was aposomatic right? It's shockingly red or shockingly blue. The idea is that it's poisonous to predators. And people probably thought that's where it stopped. But the more you study the ecology of this tiny little frog, the more you realize that the color has so much weight in sort of like the outcomes of um, agonistic encounters, like we said. So um, brightly colored species are generally more likely to win in combat. And um, females are more likely to choose uh, choose a mate who's the same color as them. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. And yeah, was there a suggestion that one color might be better in combat than others? That was kind of the um, I... that's kind of the hypothesis of this paper, isn't it? That they thought that blue or red or the intermediate colors would be better than the others. At, yes, at yes, combat. that was one of the one of the reasons to test it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, it would, you know, I suppose one thing that that would uh, suggest is perhaps there's sort of this evolutionary trajectory towards one color and away from another color or something along those lines and the eventual extinction of one color because it isn't uh reproducing as successfully as the other yeah and the colors these do seem to become because in this study they're studying there where are they they're in uh, bocas del toro region of panama which is mm-hmm. the particular area they've chosen is actually an integrated zone between blue strawberry poison frogs and red strawberry poison frogs because as you said the populations they usually tend to separate themselves out and that's probably due at least in part to the fact that females are more likely to select individuals the same color as them so you end up with these like enclaves of different colors and yeah they wanted to test whether or not because it was this natural integrated zone whether or not where these colors are meeting there's like some kind of subordination of one color by the other color yeah yeah, which is pretty crazy. It's pretty cool. Like you just wouldn't expect that color would have that big of an influence over the uh, behavior of these little creatures. No, especially when you when there is very good evidence that it is aposomatic. Anyway, you would have thought that that's enough. 
but it's as you say it interplays with a lot of stuff yeah and so before you mentioned uh, about territory right yeah now see other fun bit of context with these frogs to mention is that they're they're saying in this paper that there's no evidence that the territory itself provides resources required for reproduction for the females so the territory and all this battling over where to be is pure pure show (laughs) of look at me i've got this territory it serves no reproductive purpose for the females it is yeah I, I just sort of love that. Like you can imagine these frogs defending their little bromeliad and saying, "This is the best bromeliad. It's going to be able to protect the eggs wonderfully." Nah, this is just this is just I have it. It's crazy, <laughs> Look isn't at it? Me. Yeah, which is, is the which is the opposite. Of what you're saying with the color? The color's integrated into all this stuff. The territory isn't. It is. Uh, uh, oh gosh, what's the word? There's a word for it just being like attacked on an affectation sort mm. of of this competition <laughs> but the females know they know that the males oh, yeah. that can defend those territories are for some reason superior so they tried to test which was better at establishing a territory red or blue frogs or the integrated kind of purple color which you also get yeah they did cool. they 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 had two ways of uh determining the or measuring the color of these frogs they had uh, this sort of trio of categories, like you said, red, intermediate, blue, but they could also do it uh, continuously. So, like, how much red and how much blue on these on these sort of two continuous indexes? So you got a little bit more nuance and how red or how blue they are, which is nice from a, from a analysis point of view. Yeah, it really is. It's good because. Um... Yeah, I mean, they've taken it to another level. They're not just simply looking at frogs and categorizing them as red, blue, or purple. They're yeah. actually doing it via, you know, proper like sensory ecology approaches with digital photography mm-hmm. and actually, you know, quantifi- quantifying color properly, which is. Uh, but that being said, their categories were also pretty damn good when they tested it. They sort of back tested it to make sure they tallied up with non, uh, make sure they weren't misclassifying frogs and they were. Well, it turns out the categories were pretty good at that. So Yeah, it turns out people can tell the difference between red and blue if they're not colorblind. <laughs> Aye. Well, and intermediate, though. And, and intermediate, intermediate, yeah. That's, that's, that's an important purple. point, because they're the tricky ones. Yeah. So in order to find out who was better at establishing territory, which color was better at establishing territory? So you imagine you've got this forest floor, and there's red frogs, there's blue frogs, and there's purple frogs bowling around at will and what they do the scientists go in and they find a little frog sat in its little territory and they pick it up and they take it away and they put it in captivity for a few weeks and what they do while that frog's in captivity is they wait and they go back and they see what kind of frog has taken up that new territory be it blue red or purple and then what they're trying to do is look because they know how what percentage of the population are each color and they're looking to see if a particular color is overrepresented in establishing mm-hmm. these now empty territories so yeah is it the case that a disproportionate amount of red frogs come and take up these new territories therefore showing that red frogs are more dominant or perhaps it's blue frogs but in actual fact what they found is that there wasn't really a bias towards any color in this stage suggesting that there isn't a real difference in the ability of differently colored males to adopt a territory that said, yeah. they did find that brighter males of both red and blue morphs were able to establish in a vacant territory more so than duller males. 
So brightness reflects the ability of frogs to hold territory, but not the actual base well, colour. Well, not, not hold territory, to, to sort of Sorry, initially to claim initially establish territory. territory. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, it gets a bit confusing because they, they do later on refer to their ability. What is it? Um, what's that acronym they used throughout this paper, which kept on... I kept on having to uh, scroll back to R-H-R? work out what it was. R-H-R? Resource was, hold... Resource holding potential, RHP. RHP. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. You're right. I, I suppose later. it is to hold a territory, to gain a territory. But then there's this second stage, their second experiment. Where they're truly holding it, yeah. Yeah, where they have to hold it against the odds, against this this interloper frog. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah. I mean, do you want to go through what the second part of the experiment was? Okay, so we've got this situation. We remove that initial frog. There's a vacant territory. This new frog comes in. It turns out, okay, could be red, blue, whatever doesn't really matter but more likely to be bright then they bring back actually no sorry then they pick up that frog okay take that frog away and then the contest stage as the they call Thunderdome. it oh boy they release both the uh, original frog that was was taken the first time and this new this new frog which has uh, taken over the vacant territory place them back where they were captured and then we see, and then we see, watch them compete to see which one holds the territory, uh, you know, afterwards. Yeah. And what's you know, they didn't have enough time to sit there and, and wait for their frogs to, uh, to work this out, you know, while they're watching. Because these territorial bouts can last several days, right? Yeah, that's it. They're so not like constantly combating, but they're yeah. vying over, over days. Well, the idea is... what. It, it's. I suppose now battle cry seems more relevant because you're talking about a prolonged conflict with probably multiple battles throughout, and what they care is the outcome, the the outcome of the war as opposed to the outcome of the individual battles. You come back a few days later and see which frog still remains and which has been uh, been booted out. That's it. And in eighty four percent of cases, it was the original occupant who yes. was back in action. Yes. And that appeared to be a better predictor of who would win than any colour morph, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Colour morph, it doesn't matter what colour you are. It matters how bright you are, but it predominantly matters who held the territory first. And... Home field advantage. Exactly, yeah. As it could be called. And that suggests that the male who held the territory longest knows the territory somehow or perhaps understands its value better than the one who's trying to take it or perhaps just has more experience fighting there it's difficult really to know exactly why maybe, it's such a dramatic or maybe maybe it's just that that unknowable home field advantage of, of confidence maybe yeah. that frog just believed it could win yeah but it's mad because both frogs thought that was their territory right it's yeah. not like the one that came yeah. second had some kind of preconceived notion that the other frog had, or maybe it did it might well have done maybe known it that knew. the other frog held maybe it, it first maybe it knew it was the interloper yeah maybe in it recognised it and, and was that like, little seed of doubt yeah. undermined its ability to battle <laughs> you can imagine the frog the second <laughs> frog that arrives getting taken away it's like what's going on here and then it gets put back and it's like you're back because <laughs> <laughs> it thought this frog would be there and then it was there <laughs> Yeah, maybe it got freaked out and lost. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how long uh, maybe chemical cues are, are staying on these territories or something along those lines, and maybe mm. that's playing into it. Or... The stench of yeah. a superior male lingers, but you take or just the territory a, or just anyway. a stronger stench because it's been there longer. Very curious, anyway. Very, very curious. And honestly, yeah. these little strawberry dart frogs, 
their social lives are quite complex down there in the forest floor leaf litter area. Mm-hmm. Way mm-hmm. more complicated than you'd think. And it seems as though there are teams of people investigating the nuance of these behavioral interactions. And honestly, like I couldn't be happier to see papers like this come out. I think it's absolutely this fascinating. One's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool paper. Yeah, definitely one of the cooler papers I've read in a seriously long time. And and so what I really appreciate is it's sort of like a negative result paper. Totally, yeah. They didn't find what they were expecting. The frog right. coloration had no... It, it wasn't a case of blue frogs subjugating red frogs at all. Yeah, or any sort of... Yeah, it, it was a brightness thing and it was this, this resident, resident effect. And that's, I think, unexpected but, but fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Just a brilliant paper, really. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we've gone from do frogs combat, and I think in the course of reading for this, and certainly the papers and videos that people have been sending us, it seems as though frog combat is actually pretty widespread in the uh, frog kingdom. And has some rather wonderful nuance to it. Nuance which we're probably only just now beginning to understand, so mm-hmm. uh, yeah, looking forward to oh, some more poison frogs. thing I want to I wanna sing the praise of this paper is that it was... Um, one of those like competitive, uh, which you know, which animal is better sort of thing, but also done in the wild, so you don't have this conflating captive environment uh, thing going on, which a lot of these papers have. You know, this was a territory that a frog had chosen in the wild. They had a, you know, a, a separate control plot of their their reference population, so they knew uh, the normal. Uh, spread of red, blue, and intermediate frogs and things like that, and I feel like most of the ones when we get get to like Thunderdome esque papers are done in captivity. Yeah, and it was nice seeing one done in the wild, and and you know well controlled for basically. Yeah, totally, totally. So. Our new species of the bi-week is, in fact, a frog, as you might expect. But also, it does demonstrate, it is probably, I mean, it would be suggested by the way that they breed, that they are one of these uh, territorial, prolonged breeding species, which is quite cool. Battle frogs. Say again? Battle frogs. Yeah, they probably are. They probably are battle frogs. Um, So, let's get on to it. So, this is Rowley, uh, Lei, Huang, Cal. Dao 2020, a new species of phytotelm breeding frog from the central highlands of Vietnam, published in Zoo Taxa. And it's this year. Truly a brand new species. Yeah. So during fieldwork at high elevations in central Vietnam in 2009-2010, so going back 10 years now, they discovered two sympatric medium-sized phytotelm breeding racophorid resembling species, which just means they breed in the log hollows at the base of trees and they look like racophorid frogs from the family Arachophoridae, which as it turns excuse me as it turns out this species actually is in the grassic salus complex um yeah this group of scientists discovered two new species one of which has already been described back in 2014 they pretty much say in this paper that that was the cooler one that's why they described it first this is the sort of more brown <laughs> one uh, but obviously still needs describing so here it is and uh 
That's probably a bit unfair to just call it the brown one. It is a nice looking little beastie. It's a great looking frog. I don't know, don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, what is it? The uh, There's some nice pictures towards the end of the paper of um, the one of the male paratypes that they collected. Um, and it's, you know, it, a short-faced, big-eyed, big-limbed frog. It's got a nice pink tummy, hasn't it? Yeah, of... it's got a weirdly like pink fleshy tummy, and uh, you got this ooh, like okra sort of color top. Yeah, it's nice. It's nice. Not With actually dissimilar to the coloration of our common frogs here. Slightly more yellow, maybe. Yeah, I would go a wee bit more yellow. But you do get some pretty yellow ones now and again. Aye. Um, but yeah, and it seems from the p- pictures they're suggesting it changes color from day to night. Um, interesting. Mm, so Very many, interesting. so many, uh, like species of frog and snake change color night and day, and just like you just don't, we just don't know why. <laughs> no, well, no one's asked them. No one's asked them, and to be honest, I think they're a bit shy about it. So, yeah, don't like talking about it. But yeah, what have they called this brand new species? They've called it Graxixalis triang. Uh, specific name is in reference to the Gi Trieng people, most of whom live in Kontum province in the central highlands of Vietnam, so in the kind of vicinity of this mountain range where this frog has been discovered. And those people assisted greatly during the surveys. So yeah, nice way to honour them with this frog name. Mm-hmm. This lovely little frog. How big is this frog? What are we talking about? How am I saying little frog? How little is little? Yeah, I actually don't think it is little. I think it's got a little bit of a size. I think it's a little chunky. Okay. Uh, are we talking an SVL of around four centimetres? Hmm. Four centimetres? Hmm. Oh, wow. It's smaller than it looks. In pictures, it looks like a big chunky thing. It looks like a like toad size, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like a, like a common toad sort of scale. But no, he's little, little dainty, dainty little round frog. Interesting to see the juvenile looks a lot sort of more slender and its limbs look as though they're a lot longer in comparison to the body. I wonder if they're a little bit more arboreal as babies. Perhaps, yeah. Then they bulk up and head to the ground. Yeah. But yeah, there's some nice pictures of the habitat. It's kind of this montane evergreen and bamboo forest at 2,000 metres elevation. So it's pretty high up in uh, in Vietnam. But there's this great photo of a log hollow where they actually found the very first male. And you can see it's a log hollow filled with water. And then there's just eggs dotted all around the outside. Um, and presumably that was where the male was sat guarding its brood when it was discovered. Yeah. What else do we have? little bit of genetic stuff but we don't need to talk about that 130 eggs in the uh in the tree a lot of eggs yeah yeah um the range of this species is not thought to extend outside of mount not ngok lin and closely surrounding peaks but might occur adjacent quang nam province so it's probably Mm. restricted geographically this species probably less than a thousand kilometers squared and being as it occurs in only one threat-defined location because there's um, deforestation going on, it's pr- they, the authors suggest it's probably going to be endangered uh, in accordance yeah, with the IUCN so Redlands. Let's keep an eye on it because there's a limited range. Yeah, makes yeah. sense. But what I thought was cool is that they call it frogs breeding in... Well, they're phytotelm breeding frogs, right? So they're breeding in yeah. phytotelmata, which are these log hollows and it's only two percent of currently recognized frog species that do this so um yeah it's quite a quite an unusual adaptation it's pretty awesome yeah i'm just trying to think sort of 
why that would be, I guess, because requires forest. Less known about frogs are going to be forest frogs in the tropics where that's probably more available. Yeah. Well, you'd think like um, you'd think there would be because they do make the point in this paper that um, that is the easiest source of water in a lot of these uh, high altitude forests. It's like ah, the most abundant because source. it's perhaps because it's so easy, it's well competed for, and therefore mm. not a very good breeding place for vulnerable vulnerable tadpoles because other things can get in there and eat them. That's a good point. Yeah, and I guess that's why the male has to sit there and keep yep. tabs on things. Perhaps. Hmm. Pretty wild. Yeah. Interesting. So, um, yeah, basically there's this paper that came out in Pier J uh, back in July. And it's called Sharing mm-hmm. for Science, High Resolution Trophic Interactions. Oh, the Moritz and Moritz paper. Yeah, revealed rapidly by social media. I mm-hmm. just thought this would be a cool thing to bring up because um, you know it already. The Moritz and Moritz. Um, yeah, basically, obviously, you got papers like Herp Review, Herpetological Notes, Herpetology Notes, um, where people are publishing these individual observations of species doing things. And we always talk on this paper about how, you know, life history observations are very valuable to understanding. And, you know, we've just discussed yep. a paper here, which has confirmed a behavior that was suspected by, you know, a yep. fortuitous observation of a big frog battling another frog. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's important trait data that when you know you see these big papers that are like, oh my gosh, the ancestral uh, state of this this group was it had four legs instead of two. You can only do those sorts of papers when you have good uh, coverage of trait information of currently you know existing species. For things like birds, that tends to be a lot better than things like frogs and uh, reptiles and stuff. I'm sure it's come up in multiple papers where we're like. Oh, but X number of species, we don't know this this thing about it. Even yeah. the arboreal versus terrestrial thing we did a while ago on Venom. How, you know, how complete are those categorizations, those traits? And it is, it's important information, yeah. That's it, that's it. You've kind of got to build up these databases in order to start getting mm-hmm. overarching mm-hmm. ideas about these animals. So what they did was they set up a Facebook group which was dedicated to collecting predation events involving reptiles and amphibians in sub-Saharan Africa. And using this Facebook group, basically encouraging people who were living in sub-Saharan Africa to take pictures and submit their records of times they saw frogs, snakes, lizards, etc., either being eaten or eating other animals. And through this Facebook group, between 2015 and 2019, they collected over 1,900 independent feeding observations uh, involving 83 families of predators and 129 families of prey. Feeding events by snakes were very well represented because snakes are cool. Uh, well, close, and, and it takes they take a long time stuff. to eat, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> if a snake's eating something, you know, you've got like a two and a half hour window to walk past. <laughs> well, in most cases, some of those ones, those blind snakes that eat termites, bloody hell, blink and you miss it. Yeah, but they're underground too. True, true. So yeah, they... Uh, 1,100 feeding observations recorded, which is just fantastic. And yeah, basically, social media has provided dietary records faster than ever before in history, and prey has been identified to a finer taxonomic resolution 
than before. So yeah, essentially, social media can outperform other citizen science sort of image-based approaches like iNaturalist and Google Images because people are kind of uploading them to this like repository. Right. It can it can then kind of um, allow a discussion to take place. However, however, important important issues here, as a you know, as opposed to an iNaturalist or something like that. iNaturalist much easier for people to access stuff in terms of scientists and stuff you can do big bulk downloads very easily you've got a constantly updated taxonomic backbone so you know what species you're getting and that will change dynamically as the taxonomy updates facebook you know that's a that's a for-profit company that group is limited to you know your ad you know you've got this admin gatekeeping aspect to it you have got no uh, well, you don't have no, but you have a more difficult road for uh, getting access to that data systematically. You know, this is why they had to make a group to do this as opposed to setting up a search across Facebook for uh, predation events or something along those lines, which would be feasible, would be doable. But the way Facebook is geared now, it's very difficult to do that in a systematic way. Yeah. So, I I I love this paper. I think it's it's brilliant showing the the benefits of community science and the sort of insights that you can get relatively quickly on on very secretive species. My the only thing I I well oh, there's a couple of things I dislike about Facebook stuff specifically, um, which in different contexts can actually be good things. Is like the lack of location stuff on the photos, the lack of uh, what we call EXIF data, which is data uh, generated by the camera about the settings and things that were used at the time of the photograph. Uh, that stuff all gets stripped out for Facebook for, for privacy reasons. Mm, yep. So you're relying that on makes a lot of sense. recording it themselves, yeah. But, you know, the, the flip side of that, that's a good thing when it comes to Facebook stuff, when it comes to, you know, poachers using photos to identify where certain species are or something along those lines. Downside is that is less data and information for research and certain stuff you kind of have this constant uh, tension between supplying information openly and therefore generating good easily done rigorous uh, sort of transparently generated data for science and this horrible poacher exploitation angle on the other side mm. so it i don't know it's tricky i I love it for the insights it's done. I love it for highlighting the power of community science. Um, but I dislike how difficult it would be to reproduce that study. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, the thing which is striking to me is just like the efficiency of publishing things in this way as compared to like a Herb Review thing. Because, I mean, if you've got 1,400 observations, that could easily be 1,000 Herb Review paragraphs well condensed nicely into one paper please yeah like how how do you look for those 1000 herp review things oh download every single edition and then control f well let's let's say you, you do it in a slightly smarter way than that and you you have a bit of bit of code that runs through all the pdfs for you yeah. so you're not doing it by hand but even so You've got this taxonomic thing where you're going to have to be searching for all the synonyms and stuff like that. You're going to have all these huge chunks of PDF that you've got to search through. And you've got this issue, certainly, well, the Herp review thing, yes, there is a there is a little 
what's it, an EndNote library or some horrible format that no one can read because no one pays for EndNote uh, to look through stuff in a in a more sort of sensible format. But let's say let's say you have your little predation note. It gets published in Herb Review in 2019. Two months later, someone else sees it. They're not going to get that published because it's it's oh no, it had that had that last time. Not novel, right? It's not. We know they eat those guys. Is there value in a behavior which is seen multiple times as opposed to once? Would that be useful information to have? I think it probably is. But is publishing short predation notes the best way of doing it? I mean, it would be a a perfectly fine way of doing it as long as the restrictions on novelty and uh, access are relaxed. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Because people... That by nature of the way you view these things, like if you see a snake eating a lizard in a forest, the likelihood is that very few people are seeing that. And yeah, like you say, you've got to get that. You get it published, but then a second person comes, yeah, and you just never get it published again. So yeah, you lose that kind of commonality. Right. And then you can never distinguish between one-offs and classic typical behavior. Right. It's a great point. But then yeah. if you... You know the the counterpoint to to publishing it on you know going to Facebook or something like that. oh well, you know getting a natural history note or something is very important for early career researchers. People should get credited for their observations and that sort of stuff. Yes, agreed. Which is another reason not to do it via a social media thing and to do it via something like iNaturalist, where there is a structure via GBIF, Global Biodiversity Information Framework, for citing individual observations. And then you do get your kudos for seeing a thing mm. without the need to, to have it hidden away in, in journal stuff. So there's definitely a, a there's, I can see a better, a brighter future for well-cited people being credited for their observations in a, in a you know, sensible, good, proper framework and having repeated things. So you don't, you don't need to worry about this novelty aspect. The future's bright. The, it, it can be. <laughs> The future's bright. The future is be. better I, I just... cataloging of natural history observations in a fair way. I like that. It's, yeah. it's just this weird tension between the old school way of doing things where things have to be, you know, they have to be novel to warrant a proper, like, journal, short note, whatever, and the mass mass production of those sorts of, that sort of information. I think one of the, isn't it, um, isn't it Herp Mapper? that has that line in their data usage about uh, range extension stuff. What was it? Oh, let me let me bring it up because this 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 perfectly uh, perfectly summarizes this tension between sort of new big data stuff where really you should be accrediting hundreds of people who have observed these things and these like little geographic notes which can be very important but have this old school way of thinking that that only a few people need to get uh you know the first person who spotted this gets gets the accreditation mm. um okay yeah so there's this this idea about getting access to data uh please note the herp mapper encourages data users to contact herp mapper directly to discuss publication and sharing of these data to meet your needs while also best protecting herpetofauna populations this also ensures that multiple organizations do not attempt to publish the same new and updated count uh, county records in herpetological review geographical distribution notes. The idea 
that you need to publish a geographical distribution note on new observations of species when they are being documented via something like iNaturalist or, or I suppose the Mapper seems really weird. Yeah, like there's a bit of a redundancy there. Right, because shouldn't this have a citable structure to it, like like a GBIF situation where that is essentially irrelevant? The distribution note serves very little purpose, in my opinion, with you know the existence of things like iNaturalist these days. Mm. Yeah, well, I guess that is a that's a good point. I mean, back in the day you only had those distributional notes. There wasn't like an online repository. I mean, before the internet, it was like, let's gather together all the evidence. And then maybe later on down the road, someone would publish something with a more detailed range that incorporated all of those notes. And then that would be your go-to, perhaps a field guide or something. I feel like now you're moving a little bit beyond that. And there are papers sort of uh, uh, suggesting these, what did they call it? Next generation field guides and things but you could very easily see how predation-like information could be integrated into something more akin to an iNaturalist than, you know, a whole bunch of journal uh, notes. Yeah. Another thing and I like the Moritz paper for being halfway between the two, and I feel like it just needs a little bit of a push over to that formalised, mm. citation-based iNaturalist GBIF kind of way. Ever since you said next generation field guides, I've been imagining like a VR headset where you just get plunged into the field and you see the animal in its native environment. Oh no, you see the world through the animal's eyes. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine if we could just plug it into our brains so we could just like see everything as the animal sees it. Oh God, you'd go mad instantly. Yeah, it'd be great. Mad (laughs) as a frog. (laughs) Suddenly next thing you know, you're expected to thumb wrestle another frog. (laughs) I don't want any part oh, of it. It'd be great. People would love it. Right. Well, I think that neatly concludes our episode on frog combat, which, as it turns out, is extremely widespread in nature. Yeah. Uh, and fascinating. Um, so if you want to get in touch with us, keep those records of frog combat coming. You can email us, herphighlights at gmail.com, or we're on Facebook and Twitter. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash herphighlights. We're always exceptionally grateful for that. And uh, Mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. all that remains to be said is thanks for listening. Yeah, thank you for listening. I can keep going. Um, no, I thought I had something to say. Um, False alarm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, sorry, mate. I mean, it's, it's yeah, I, I was going to add something about the territoriality, but you sort of just summed it up nicely, and that was... Uh, okay, fair, fair, fair. Well, yeah, I mean, you don't have to.